Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Dream Nation Love. I'm your host, Yulia. And today on the show, I've got Yvonne Hutchinson. She's the CEO and founder of Ready, Set. And that is an equity, diversity, and inclusion firm based out of Berkeley, California. Previous to running Ready, Set, she was an international human rights and labor lawyer. She did that for over a decade and she consulted for foreign national governments, the U.S. Department of State, the U.N. She's brilliant and she has a new book out and it's called How to Talk to Your Boss About Race speaking up without getting shut down. It's also available on audiobook and it's a really quick read. It tackles really taboo topics like race. And what I really love about it is that she really brings in her law background into it. And she mentions a lot of cases that go towards uh, dealing with race and race at work. I really enjoyed her writing. It's amazing. So you should check it out. It's a quick read. It's a it's a dense book, but it's a quick read and it's quite enjoyable. So I hope you enjoy the discussion as well. We talk about a lot of really, really interesting topics and uh, share this podcast with a friend if you enjoyed it. Also subscribe to the newsletter, which is on the Dream Nation Love website, which is dreamnation.io. And also if you go to the Dream Nation Love Instagram page, which is Dream Nation Love, subscribe to the newsletter. I'm going to be giving away a few copies of the book. Enjoy the show and talk to you soon. Hi, Yvonne, and thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for writing your book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really, really happy that you enjoyed it. I have your book right here. (laughs) It's a really great book and it's very pertinent. Yeah. Because it talks about the pandemic and it talks about everything that collided in the pandemic. So that's what I really enjoyed about it because I'm like, wow, this is like probably the most current book that I read about race and race relations and, and how to navigate work. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're in such a period of transition and change. In the book, I say that it's of its time, but it's also timeless. Like these issues have been here since the founding of this country and they're not going to go away overnight. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of the things we talk about in the book are timeless, but at the same time, like you said, it's very much of of its time. We're seeing just a fundamental shift in the way that we relate to our work the way we talk about race in our country and the collision between identity and the workplace, or I should say that they've always been, they've always collided, but I guess the sort of recognition that you can't check your identity at the door when you go to work. And the fact that workplaces are really having to figure out how do we grapple with these sort of deeply embedded societal ills that impact our workers after they walk through our doors. Right. Or they just, log on to zoom too yeah yeah exactly it's like you know what nobody really talks about which is really interesting is also like the backgrounds in the houses to peek into during a zoom on a huge conference call that shows societal structures i'm not going to mention which company was but you can see where like my boss logs in from his like amazing kitchen you know and everybody else is in their like tiny apartments and you're like you probably probably should think a different room just to like not flaunt it just to be considerate yeah I talk a lot about those blurred lines, right? I feel like there's almost this kind of like artificial sense that we can separate who we are outside of work. And especially with the rise of remote work, the boundaries between personal and professional are even more blurred. Like you just, it's not like I can strip away my identity when I'm talking to you from my kitchen. Like we are literally in my apartment, in my kitchen, with this little Zoom background thing that I have set up. So it looks acceptable. Right. But 
there's no way then that I can take my identity out of my home. And I think, and that's why I think it's so interesting when we have these conversations about identity and work, because like you're saying, those lines are just even more blurred now. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I can go on because it's, it's a conversation in itself. Yeah. So I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many points to talk about, but I want to bring it back to your book yeah. and back to your work. I, I was going to ask you, my first question is always, what was your dream as a kid growing up? <laughs> so when I was a kid, I used to say, and maybe this is still possible, who knows, that I wanted to be vice president. I said, being the president was too much pressure. I don't want to be the person in front. <laughs> too much scrutiny. But I was like, I could be vice president. And then if I decided I wanted to be president, then I could run for president. So that was my dream as a kid. It's still kind of my dream. It's a wonderful dream your priorities. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, those kids who all want to be president, they're really missing the vote. Vice president is where it's. <laughs> you get the same benefits, really. You really same do. benefits. <laughs> I get to be around the White House. I can pick and choose what initiatives I want to be in. I think, I think Always that's what have Biden the did. Track. <laughs> I think that's what Biden did. And I'm pretty sure Dick Cheney ran the place when Bush was okay. in See, I'm not going to talk about any specific politician. I'm just going to say that playbook has been executed before. And I would also like to execute it. You are a lawyer and you're much more diplomatic about it than I am. I love it. I love it. That's such a great dream. I would love to see that dream come true. It's a wonderful Me dream. Too. 2040. <laughs> I don't even know if it's a lecture you're making it. Is. Yeah. You know what? We'll make it. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll have yeah. it. <laughs> I was going to ask you this question, which is like a really open-ended question that I think you answered so lovely in your book, which was its own chapter. It's such a hard question to answer. What is race? It's funny how that, that came into the book, actually. I'll give a little bit of backstory. So... I'm writing this whole book about racism in the workplace. And there's a section in which you have to like, we're defining what the terms are. And I have it all written and like the chapter's actually done. My ed- editor came back to me and she was like, why fine, you know, I think we actually have to define race. And I was like, no, because it's such a big term. So I just like kind of sit with it and wrestle with it. And I think it's big because race is a socially constructed thing, right? What is it to be Black? Is my daughter Black? She, her mother's African-American. Her father is Latino and white. Is she Black? Is she Latino? What is Latino? There are some, like, you can be white Latino, you can be... And so whenever you try to, whenever I try to come up with a definition to describe something that's socially constructed and malleable, right? Because when we think historically, Italians haven't always been white. Irish people haven't always been white. They're definitely white today, but that wasn't the case. I reflect back on the controversy with Whoopi Goldberg and the view that just happened where she said the Holocaust wasn't about race. And part of what makes that conversation so difficult is that Jewish identity and race are like race is fluid, not just with Jews, with everyone. Race is fluid. And so a group can be considered racially constructed one day and not racially constructed the next. It serves political purposes. That's why we have the racial categories that we do. In a lot of ways, I talked about people's reactions to my race and how race is determined by path. Because it doesn't exist objectively in the world, I'm Black in the U.S. I'm not Black when I go to Ghana. 
I'm something else if I go to South Africa, American if I go to Jamaica, right? Because it's socially constructed, because it's malleable, because it's fluid, I talk about its impact on my life because it definitely also determines, though, the kind of life I'm able to lead and how people react Mm -hmm. to me. So that's how I describe race in the book as this thing that is socially constructed, but has very real world implications. You can say race is made up all day, but when I walk out in the streets, I'm going to be treated like a black woman. If I'm in a store, people follow me. You know what I mean? I've had cops pull me and my mom over when we've been in a neighborhood that's too nice. The world treats me like a black woman. Ergo, I am black for the purposes of the world. Who I am innately I'm also black innately because I, that has, you know, formulated my conception of myself and how I see myself vis-a-vis other people. But it's so hard for me to explain in part because it's so full and it's just like catching, it's like catching water. And I think your book does such a lovely job of it too, just sharing your experience as well, because your experience made me think of my experience because I'm Jewish and my family survived the Holocaust only because we're white passing because we happen to have blue eyes Mm -hmm. and blonde hair where Mm -hmm. the rest of my family has dark hair and dark eyes. And I don't really know how my mom's side got blue eyes. Like we don't know where it goes, but it somehow helped us escape the Holocaust. But it's like, I think also like when people hear the conversation about race, they're, they're so nervous because they're like, Oh, which race is this going to be? Is this going to be Black Lives Matter? What yeah. is this going to be like? But it's so broad, and it's just a conversation about humanity. I, I think your book answers it, and I think it's such a nervous topic, especially at work. Yeah, your book reminded me of all the crappy places that I've worked, and all the crap that I've put up with, and all the crap that I've seen, and all the stuff yeah. that I've spoken out as much as I could about but also like how taboo it is and how hard it is to change these systems that you enter and you have to go in and make money and there's nowhere to go until you quit. And if you go to a different place, it's just as bad. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book, right? Like I think you hit the nail on the head with, we have to change these systems. I think it's so hard for us as individuals grappling with concepts that like, frankly, our education system and society doesn't teach us to grapple with. I talk a lot about trying to ignore my Blackness early on in my career and in my childhood, in part because that was the message that I was taught. Be colorblind. Race isn't that important. And, you know, I grew up in a majority white environment and I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe I could achieve my way out of Blackness. And so I didn't I say all of that to say I didn't grow up really learning about how to talk about these things. I We had conversations about race at home because my parents grew up during the civil rights movement and they tried to equip me for navigating race in the real world. And a lot of times I try to push those aside. Like I, it was uncomfortable for me. I didn't want to admit that was going to determine some of my outcomes in life. So I think that's fair to say that it is. It's taboo and it's hard to talk about on purpose. And I I wrote this book in part to try to take away some of that taboo because it is just a fact of life at this stage. We can't put our heads in the sand and pretend like this is not happening, like race doesn't impact us and racial violence isn't real. And we also, I also wanted to give people the tools to say, okay, if it's real, how do I navigate it? How do I really try to change a system as one person for the better? That brings me to my next question, which is, 
how can one person create systemic change at work, which is what you talk about in the book and you provide tools. And this is probably the most comprehensive guide I've seen in a very long time. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. I didn't realize like I could do that. I didn't realize I could. Oh, this is a manual. This is a manual on how to like use your voice. Yeah. I really tried to make it actionable and practical in that way. Because I feel, I felt so many times going to like books and looking for an answer and not getting, really getting something that felt concrete. And that was why I wanted to write this because I wanted to give people concrete tools. When I think about the framework for social change, for cultural change within a system, those tools are definitely part of it. And to to answer the first part of your question, but I also think about what is the work that we need to do? My framework is like, start off with the self-work. Think about your identity, how that impacts how you show up to places, what you may see, what you may miss, and how others may hear you, you know, on the basis of that. Think about your location and how you can leverage it to think strategically. What is your own power? How do you move from thinking about power as a binary, like if I have it versus if I don't have it, towards more of a spectrum in terms of what types of power do I hold? Like doing that introspection first. And then the second thing I always recommend is remember as an individual trying to change a system, they're like, you're not, you shouldn't go at this alone. So I really try to, in some ways, it's kind of a switch up because I really want people to move away from thinking about individualistic approaches to systemic change, which is often what society teaches us to think about. You know, they highlight individuals that change systems. They highlight Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Susan B. Anthony. And they don't necessarily talk about the machines, the collectives of people who are behind those individuals. So I always say to you, after you've done those that, that reflection, that is all in service of you contributing to a larger whole and really acting as part of a group to enact some of the changes that you want to see in the workplace. And then we get more into like the strategic parts of the work as well. And I really wanted to nail that down because a lot of this culture change work we tend to think of it as a emotional or intuitive, innate, like we something we innately know how to do. We don't know how to innately know how to do this at all. Any more than I innately know how to program a computer, changing an organizational culture is not innate to us either. So really thinking about what are some practical tools that we can use to, to be more strategic in our culture change efforts. And I think that it's so great in the book to use examples of like how... Google used that and how it's really interesting to see what's going to happen with Tesla right now. It's, <laughs> oh gosh, oh, oh gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see what change happens and what change won't happen. And I really yeah. love that you have um, a lawyer background. So you're really able to put a lot of cases into context, yeah. which I was not aware about. I was like, oh my gosh. And then I read the section about Lyft that you mentioned that Lyft was trying to get all their workers classified as freelance workers. And I remember that happening, but I didn't realize they were doing that just so they don't have to pay them healthcare. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's wild. So you have all of these amazing real world examples. You just taught me a bunch of things I did not know about. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Yeah, I try to ground it in the real world. And I I usually shy away from real world examples because I don't want to single people out. Mm -hmm. Like with Lyft, and the worker classification cases, 
they were opposing AB5 legislation in California, which is legislation that would have pushed rideshare workers to be classified as full-time employees. And when you have full-time employees, it means you you have to pay their benefits, not just healthcare, it's all these. And Lyft wasn't the only one that was fighting that particular legislation. A lot of rideshare delivery on-demand companies did not want to have their workers classified in this way. And they were doing that also during the pandemic while they were saying their workers were essential workers. Which is it going to, going to be? But, but, but those examples aside, I think it's super important for us to really ground what we see with real world examples, because quite often the way this manifests, how racism manifests at work is incredibly nuanced and it intersects with a lot of other isms like classism, sexism, homophobia. And so I think it's really important to say, no, that wasn't just a one-off or no, that wasn't just like somebody who misspoke. These are part of broader systemic issues. And, you know, two organizations where we've seen it come up recently, like these, this is a pattern of behavior too. You mentioned Tesla. I'm also mindful of the lawsuit with the NFL. This is a pattern of these kinds of allegations, these kinds of, and until there is a defend, there's definitive accountability and there is an incentive to fix them, these patterns are going to continue. And you go into this really well into your book too, just like what brings about change, financial costs and, and stuff like that. And that was fascinating. And I was going to ask you the question of how does one talk to their boss about racism, which is like the <laughs> title of your book. And it's also like the most yeah. intimidating title ever because you're like, I am going to get fired. <laughs> well, so that's why I do a lot of lead up to the actual conversation. Like I said, I think the conversation has to be part of a broader strategy of like how you're actually going to change your culture. And I think every boss is different. And so for me to come out and say, this is everything you have to, it might not apply to your boss. But what I tell people generally is, first of all, do that background work, the self-knowledge work, finding a group of or like finding a group of people who are doing that work in the company, seeing what conversations have already happened, and then really understand your boss. I think a lot of times we who are really passionate about this stuff we come in with our passion first, which is great, but we don't always serve ourselves if we're not also being mindful of the motivations of the person that we're talking to, the constraints that they may have, what they're empowered to do, and where their biases may be. So I think it's really important to hold that as well. So having knowledge of the person that you want to talk to and their incentives is really important too. I also talk about practicing your case for DEI. So really think about what is going to resonate with your boss, not just what makes sense. We've been doing the business case for DEI for like 20, 30 years. Not a lot has changed. That business case has been in place since the 90s, right? And so even though rationally we know DEI produces better outcomes over time, there's something that's not sticking with organizations or with individuals inside of organizations with that particular case. So you say, don't just go with a case that's rational and makes sense. People aren't always rational. You need to go with a case that's going to resonate with the person you talk to, whether that's a risk-based case, like we don't want to be the next Starbucks or the next Tesla or, you know, at this point, if it's a liability case, we don't want to get sued. If it's a social change, like we want to be at the forefront of this, whatever your case is for your company, think about that. 
make sure you're creating a good container for conversation. So devote enough time to the conversation as much as possible. Understanding this conversation is emotionally charged. Think about how to decharge yourself emotionally, right? Because when we get to too much of an emotional place, our fight or flight response gets activated and it can be really hard for us to listen, actively listen to someone and respond to them in a thoughtful and considered way, which is exactly what you need to do in this conversation. So practice to do that. Take deep breaths, be mindful, meditate, allow yourself enough time, minimize distractions. So like if you're on a Zoom call, put your phone away. If you're in person, shut the laptop. Really focus on having that face-to-face conversation, actively listen, show you're listening by repeating what your boss says, processing that with your boss in real time, and then know how to navigate fragility. I talk about this a lot in my book. Is like, you could have this conversation perfectly. Quite often this happens. We go in, we're vulnerable, we take a growth mindset, we listen. But all the person on the other side of the conversation hears is, I'm calling you a racist, you're a racist, 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 right? And they respond in a way that can be very emotional, can derail a conversation, that can feel like retaliation or actually be retaliation. We also have to be prepared for that. And we have to know when to take breaks in the conversation and when to walk away from the conversation altogether. And if this conversation hopefully goes well, then we also have to know how to follow up. So I talk about all of those things in my book, but that's kind of the basic framework that I lay out. Mm-hmm. And I love how you add that it's all about creating action. It's not about just having a conversation. Yeah. It's about carrying through with action and holding people accountable that they create these actions and you outline everything and you come to an agreement over actions. And that's yeah. how change happens because it doesn't happen with just talking. That's right. That's right. And you know, when I, when I wrote the book and I was talking about this idea, I actually had a little bit of resistance. I feel like a lot in DEI work, there is an emphasis on the conversation. Like we just got to have tough conversations and things will change. And what I came to with the book is that you cannot have change without conversation. It's more than just a conversation, but a conversation is going to be what opens the door and what sets you up to take these actions. And so often in my work with ReadySet, I'm the CEO of a DEI firm, ReadySet, and we've worked with hundreds of companies up until this point. And a lot of that work informs the experience that I bring to the book. But where I feel like a lot of times our initiatives don't go well, or we, we need to like change courses when the communication is actually not there. So it is such an intricate process where you need the action, but every action has to be accompanied with intentional, compassionate, and I would say like proactive communication. This book is a part of the work that you do and you have a company. at the yeah. And I was going to ask you, like, what are some conversational techniques that you can share that maybe you do yeah. at Ready, Set and that you've also included in the book? that can help people start these conversations. And of course, you, they should definitely reach out to you if they're yeah. in conversations because I think this is such a difficult topic that it's not something that you really yeah. want to do alone. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I'll reiterate that I think it's really important at Ready Set, we do this too, is make sure you're talking to the person you need to talk to. 
So it could be that you need to interrupt someone's behavior. It could be that you want to see a broader shift in your department. Could be you notice some things in your managerial or reporting relationships. Whatever the reason that's motivating you to have this conversation, make sure the person you're talking to is the best person to have this conversation with. The person most likely to impact and change the thing that you want to see change and the person that you want to build a relationship with. We do this a lot at Ready, Set, figure out who do we need to talk to first and how do we think about sequencing our conversations? So I would say that's first. I already gave a few tips, but something else that we do at Ready, Set that I do personally in my work is I really try to take a growth mindset with these conversations. I talk a lot about calling people in before calling people out. If you are talking to someone you want to build relationship with, you want to be in partnership with, shame is not the best place to start. And the calling people out is in large part driven by shame and public accountability. And I think there's such a place for that, particularly where other accountability mechanisms are, have failed and people aren't incentivized to be accountable. Okay. And where there's like power differentials and where like the relationship is actually less important. But here, I think it's really important to, to think about calling in versus calling out. I think it's important to, like I said, use that growth mindset. I often tell stories of my own personal growth, things that I've gotten wrong. I try to be vulnerable and say, nobody has gotten this right. I haven't gotten this right. Here's where I have struggled. Here's where I have had to invest in my own growth. Here's what I have internalized and had to undo to open the door for people to talk about their struggles as well. I don't think we do these conversations well when we try to come in as experts in the room. I think that can be really alienating and oftentimes it's disingenuous. This conversation moves so fast, even if we're on the cutting edge of it one day, we probably won't be the next. And we've all been raised and brought up in this white supremacist society. And we're lying to ourselves if we don't think that we struggled with that, had to push past some of that and had to do our own personal work. So I think it's so important to model that in the conversation, to model humility, to model growth, to offer partnership. And I also say, Give people things to do, easy, actionable things that can make them feel like they're successful. I use the example of the civil rights movement, letter writing campaigns to show like how you can bring in allies, but also how you can give people something to do that will make them feel like they're part of your effort. And I know that there's a push against giving people ally cookies or awarding people for doing the bare minimum. But at the same time, you got to set people up for success. So like really think about what is that tangible ask, that tangible, realistic ask you have of your boss or the person in conversation with, what can you give them that low hanging fruit? And we do this at Ready, Set. What can you give them to do tomorrow? that can help make things better. And then I talk about moving beyond that conversation to like all your own personal actions and what, you know, what are some of the low hanging things that, that you can do. So that's often like also how we do it at Ready Set. I know I started to go into the book, but really kind of giving those people those things, showing that growth mindset, giving people tangible things to do where they're going to be successful, balancing the systemic with the individual and like checking back in and knowing this is a process. It doesn't just happen with one conversation. I was wondering if you can actually share the letter writing story because I know it's in your book. But just because yeah. I think when you see books about race, you're going to be like, oh, this is going to be so heady and this is going to be not personal. And this is just going to be like 
over my head. This is going to be complicated. This book yeah. is such a lovely mix of like personal stories, case stories, and, and mm-hmm. your law background that like, yeah. it's a really quick read. It's very enjoyable. Can, can, I'm like, can I, <laughs> I was like, okay, this is going to be a really difficult book to read. I'm putting time towards this because it's going to be really heavy. It wasn't heavy. It was just full of yeah. knowledge and it was, it was a delight to read. Thank you. Yeah, I, I tried not to make it too heavy in part because I think we're sitting with a lot of pain and trauma right now. This is part of it. And I try to hold space for that in the book and see that throughout, particularly at the end. But at the same time, I think sitting in trauma and pain doesn't serve us. We have to process it. We And then we have to figure out how to move through it. We don't deny it. But we have to create space for joy as well to do this work in a sustainable way. It's so easy for us to burn out that we have to do it in a sustainable way. I think you're so right. Just in the joy of it, because there's been so much yeah. stress with the pandemic, yeah, with a race climate in the last yeah. two years. And who knows what the future is going to be like? I, I don't know. I don't know which way yeah. anything is going, which is another discussion, which is what the hell is happening in the world? <laughs> And creating joy. It's just like, it's like, huh, I, oh, I'm, I'm, I have joy for a second. And I, I'm forgetting yeah. about like the hellscape that we are going through that right now that we're in. Yeah. We can talk about that in a second because I think it's so important. But to, to answer the first question about the story, the civil rights movement story that I use in the book, the story serves to illustrate two points. The first is what I kind of mentioned, how you can do something tangible and practical to move the needle. But the second is how we think about engaging our allies. That's a big part of the book is like, find your friends. Don't do this work alone. Find your friends. And part of it may be converting friends over to your cause. So making new friends, making a friend out of somebody who might not have been a friend before. And in the book, I talk about uh, quite often when we're engaged with a particular cause, We think of the people around us as being for that cause or against that cause. And we think of our mission as having to try to convert somebody from being against our cause to totally being for our cause and then keep the people who are totally for our cause engaged in our cause. When reality is, it's quite, it's a lot more nuanced. And so I refer to this tool in my book called the spectrum of allies. And that tool basically says, when it comes to people who are potential allies, you have people who are strongly opposed to your cause, people who are strongly supportive, and folks in the middle. It's a half moon, and they, they divide up the that, that piece into like little pie wedges. And it's like uh, strongly opposed, mildly opposed, neutral, mildly supportive, strongly supportive. And they say your mission in doing this work actually isn't to get somebody from strongly opposed to strongly supporting. It's to get someone one degree over. So always think about how you move that person one degree over. So say all that to say, the civil rights story background I talk about is the the voter registration drive in the South during the civil rights movement. And essentially um, what the SNCC did, and that was like the civil rights movement, the civil rights organization at the time, is they said, okay, we've got some like white allies and we've got, we, we want to register people to vote and we need to get more people in the middle, particularly more people with power in the middle. How are we going to engage white moderates? So what they did is they had People on campus, white students on campus who are kind of passionate about issues of civil rights, go down 
and register people to vote. In the summer, I think it was like, I think maybe the summer, I don't remember, the like 1968, I want to say, but I think it was actually earlier. It was 1965. They had these people go down. But the violence that these kids saw, some of them didn't survive. Some of them were killed. They saw the lynching. They saw the police crackdowns and they saw the fire hoses. They saw just this oppression and they were also targeted, right? This is the thing that we often forget is that white people who ally themselves with the civil rights movement or civil rights causes can themselves be harmed too. So they say, saw this stuff. The ones who were lucky enough to go back to school the next year who survived went back to their college campuses and they wrote their parents and they told them what they saw. They also organized their campuses. So they went from being kind of supportive or like we're down with this thing to being really passionate and converting other white people. These parents saw their children being targeted and they were like, whoa, these parents in the North, they're like, wait a second. This is affecting my children. I had no idea how bad it was. They start telling their friends. They're like, they're number one converted. They're putting political pressure on their representatives. They're talking to their congressmen. And then they're talking to their friends who may be mildly opposed or strongly opposed. They're not just neutral. They're on the other side of the spectrum. And they're saying, do you know what's happening? Do you know what my kid experienced? You're telling me that what my kid experienced is okay? And then they're converting those people. And what we saw in that example is pretty quickly, you get civil rights legislation pushed through and signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, because you've now got this pressure from these white moderates and people who were even opposed to civil rights legislation who have now been converted saying, we've got to do something. All because you engaged a smaller group of people who had more leverage and were able to bring other people in. So that's the civil rights example. And I love that example because it just illustrates so much. I love that example. And I was going to say that um, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks every time I have a guest because, you know, I have a kid now, so I, I don't have time to yeah. read. Like reading is really hard, as you know, like doing anything is really hard with a toddler. So yeah. I've been doing audiobooks. And since your book is not available on audio yet, I have to read it. And oh, it is. Oh, is it? I it is available. It. Yeah. I tried to find out on Audible. I couldn't find it. Oh, yeah, it's totally on Audible. So, yeah, folks, it's available. <laughs> it's available on Audible. But um, but I was going to say, I was really looking forward to sitting down and reading every night. I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't done it. But I really enjoyed reading your book. Your book got Thank me so sitting much. down and, like, turning off the TV and, like, really being in the story again. And I was like, right, books, instead of multitasking when you're listening to something, just taking the time to really absorb something. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think I love the audio book, but I also think having the print version in your hand, then you can like see mm -hmm. the diagrams, the maps, the tools. Yes. And like, I encourage people to write in the book and stuff because it's meant to be a handbook. Interesting. Okay. So you're available on Audible. Okay. I just want to plug that in because I want to make sure that people <laughs> download the book. It's available on Audible, yeah. so please get it. And also get yeah. the book, too, because you know what? It's really yeah. good to have both, and it's nice. It's a lovely, lovely size. I'm going to show it right here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and you know what? As you were speaking, it also reminded me of like how the organizing right now for people who are in the middle is being limited on social media. Yeah. So yeah. in a weird yeah. way, like I was like, before I started talking about race and politics on my podcast, because before I was like, hey, let me start out early and feel it out and see how it is. Like, yeah. my hashtags were going off the wall. Yeah. Like, I would post something, it would get a lot of hits. The more 
race and social economic stuff and woman empowerment stuff, I was like, Instagram just cut me off. And I was like, I know I'm not doing the same engagement stuff that like normally people do on Instagram because I don't want to be an influencer. I just want to share ideas. I want to share, amplify voices. I don't care to be like a TikTok star. But it's interesting because it's like, who gets to say on social media now? Like when there was a campaign for missing and murdered indigenous women, Instagram canceled that hashtag for quite a while. So it's like, how do we organize in this day and age? What tools do we use? Is it going back to newsletters? Is it going back to in a world where we can organize in, you know, the metaverse? How do we do that when we're being canceled? It's so tough too, because the platforms that we're using, the platforms that are big enough to reach all of us, engage all of us and get us all to act quickly are themselves pretty problematic and are built by teams that aren't necessarily diverse, who don't have interests, everybody's interests in mind. There's a lot of work that's been done on some of the biases inherent in Facebook and 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 I think Twitter's the, the case too. All these platforms have also been weaponized to harass activists, not just activists, anyone who is like different, who is trying to do some of the social work. It's just super difficult. The tools we use are flawed. We have to know that. We have to work around those flaws. I don't mean don't think it means they're not useful. Right. I think it just means we have to be intentional on how we use them and we have to be mindful of when the interests of the platform diverge from our personal interests. We can't just assume, like you said, with your engagement, platforms always going to amplify our voices and what we do. Cause a lot of times platforms have an interest in trying to silence this conversation. I also think it's hard because of COVID and being in person is so hard. But I think, you know, I talk a lot about building communities within work because I think Like people are looking for that interpersonal, those interpersonal relationships. So I think thinking about your personal relationship and how you can leverage those are important. I think finding groups outside of the workplace. And I think sometimes like the group, it's not just about a a hashtag or a post. It could be about finding a group on these social media platforms and really thinking about who's got the Facebook group or who's got, who's in this meetup, who's where I can find a community and we can start in this space and then go to a different space. And I'll also just say organizing, moving people, culture change isn't just about going viral. A lot of times you have these community organizations, these social organizations that are doing deep political work that often don't get that public traction that are just as important. And I I will say to that end as well, starting local. You know, I think one of the things that conservatives have done really well is, yes, there is this misinformation engine that is happening on YouTube. Facebook, all of these on all these platforms. But there's also quite a bit of local action happening. If you look at what's happening to our local offices, our school boards, the local conversations are moving to the right in part because people are being more active there. And I think we can do that too. We can think locally as well as thinking globally too. So I would say those are, those are some of the suggestions that I would make. This is such a nice segue because you mentioned globally, because my next question was going to be, 
how can one champion anti-racism when working abroad? You're a global citizen. I'm just going to say that. And I think you really get to see racism when you travel. The more you travel the world, the more you understand yeah. people and the more you understand yeah. how people perceive you. Yeah. You just understand the world better. And maybe people don't travel and maybe due to COVID, I think that's getting a lot harder too. And that's that's what's sad that people don't get to see the world and they don't get to experience it and they get only to see like this myopic view of it. Yeah. I say in my book, and I spend a little bit of time here because of my own history, that racism is a global problem. I've lived in countries around the world. I've lived in Nicaragua. I lived in Thailand on the border with Burma. I lived in Afghanistan. I lived in Europe. I've just lived quite a few places. And in almost every place, I've had to deal with racism. And sometimes the racism comes from different parts of society. Sometimes I'm in a society that's inherently racist. I, you know, talk a little bit about my experience in Brussels. Not all Belgian people are racist, but Belgians have a, a really tragic history with the Congo, a violent history. And so walking around as an unambiguously Black person in Brussels and Belgium, you know, I felt that. And until I opened my mouth and people realized I was African-American and not African, was treated differently. And even when I did, I was, you know, still not treated well, treated very coldly. But sometimes it also comes from white communities that are expat communities within places. There are countries I would go to and I would have no problem with the locals who were there, but white people from Europe and America would bring their racism to another country's context, and I would have difficulty there. I say all this to say, it's not just a U.S. issue, and leaving the U.S. will not absolve you of it. And I'll add one, before I answer your question about how do we think about it when we're working abroad, one layer of complexity. While I am a member of an oppressed minority group in the U.S., I'm an African-American woman, sent descendant of slaves in the U.S., I still have a lot of privilege associated with my identity when I go abroad and have very real impact. I think there's a lot we can say about imperialism and what it looks like when people from rich countries go to other countries and either impose their beliefs and worldview or try to extract resources from those countries or do both. And I have really had to critically think about my place globally, politically, socially, when I go to countries and I see these extractive systems built in these beautiful places where people don't have a lot, right? Like I've been a tourist in Bali and seen how the tourists live versus how the locals live. I've seen it in Central America, you know, and yes, living in Nicaragua, but also vacationing in Costa Rica and all these those other beautiful places. I saw it in Thailand. And so my identity doesn't absolve me of my privilege as well. And so I have struggled with that, have wrestled with that too. I think that's important to lay out. Now, to answer your question, how do we deal with it when we're there? I think we try to, first of all, make sure that our work isn't part of this extractive paradigm. When I was working as an international human rights lawyer, I think there was some of that embedded in it, right? It was like, okay, I am, as an American, I'm going to come in and tell you how to do your human rights. And I'm going to make a huge salary sometimes, not all the time. Also, people were, sometimes I wasn't paid that much, while locals 
who are know the context, live there, doing all the hard work, make substantially less. And you have to listen to me. Why? Because I'm American with a Harvard Law degree. What is that? I was never the type of person to engage in like problematic behavior abroad. Like I'm not going to like go to like a strip club or like whatever. But we also know that humanitarian aid organizations, international NGOs are guilty of some of the very things that they purport to help solve. So it's like, what am I endorsing? What I'm contributing by my presence? So I think we have to critically interrogate the actual work that we're doing and the relationships of the organizations that we're a part of to the countries that they're in and how they treat people local to those countries. And then we really have to think about, are we part of something that seeks only to sustain itself? You know, I saw this quite a bit in, in Afghanistan, this whole aid government ecosystem where everybody was making money and then nothing was happening for the Afghan people? Or are we really thinking about how do we empower people locally to take over those jobs? I absolutely think there's a place for humanitarian aid, support, international involvement. We have a responsibility to like go into the countries that we've exploited for so long or who suffer because of conflict. But also we need to empower those people and not dictate what needs to happen. And then we need to be able to step away and have empowered people decide their own fates, right? Give them resources or whatever, but like have those people at the center and not us. And I also think finally, we need to more so than anyone interrupt where we see racism happening, whether that's between people who are we're working with or when we're out in the street and we see like an expat treating somebody like garbage because they do that all the time. People go to these countries to be kings and queens and be treated with a level of deference, which is disgusting in my mind by other human beings. And so I think we also have a responsibility when we see expats behaving that way to check them right away because the person who's on the receiving end of that doesn't have the privilege, is quite often economically dependent on tourism, can't always say no. And so like, if we see that happening, we have a responsibility to say no as well. So those, those are some of the things that I think that we can do to leverage our global privilege to interrupt the exploitation and the violence that we quite often see in the, these countries that we go to. Yeah, and I like to add that they're usually women, children, or LGBTQ people as well. And yeah. especially in Thailand, I, I spent some time in Thailand, and it, it's some places are horrific. Yeah, I hate to single out one country because I, because I've seen it everywhere. It's happening in the U.S. It's happening in the it happens in the U.S. It happens in Latin America. It happens, and I think there's just a sort of neo imperialistic idea that we can just go into a place, take everything that's beautiful about it, give nothing back, and treat the people who live there like they're disposable or like they were meant to serve us in their own homelands. There's a great conversation happening about the term immigrant versus expat. When you look at the way that we, with Western privilege, go into countries and say, oh, we're not immigrants, we're expats, we're here to benefit your economy, et cetera. And then the way we treat people who come into our own country, the way we treat immigrants, the way we treat these people, it's so hypocritical. It, like, it actually really, you can tell it really touches a nerve with me because I think we try to think that we're above this stuff. And we literally have places, even in the U.S., you have places like Hawaii saying like, we don't want tourism like this. 
Like we're not your playground. And you have places like Puerto Rico being like, we need to be empowered. It's not that happening that far away from home. And I think we really have to be introspective about how we show up these places, whether it's within our own borders in our country or not. Mm-hmm. It's so beautifully put because we don't think it's happening in the U.S. and it is. I think the more you travel and yeah, U.S. is such a complicated space too because it's so it's so diverse. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I did want to pick up on one thing you said, which is like this happening in the U.S. And I think in part it's because the U.S. is, is so diverse. But I think it's also like inequality is embedded into the foundation of our country and the foundation of these global relationships that I'm talking about. We think about three-fifths compromise, which is like in our constitution, or we think about how people not everybody was afforded the same rights in the beginning with the U.S., right? You had white landowners who were protecting everybody else. It was like, you know, you don't get the right to vote. Like, you don't. And it's kind of been undoing. A lot of this has been a process of undoing what's embedded to our very fabric. And when we think globally, if you look at the history of colonialism, imperialism, trade, self-determination, all these things, a lot of these things influence our geopolitical dynamics today and these relationships today. So I just wanted to touch that. Like, this is like, you know what I mean? It doesn't happen out of the blue. A lot of times we're trying to undo the damage that's been done historically. Right. I was going to chime in on the difference between expats and immigrants. I think immigrants are forced to leave their country where expats have a choice and they usually have money and they choose to leave the country mm. sometimes yeah. not always sometimes it's sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. so i think yeah. that's like a whole entire podcast in itself but i was going to ask you you know what is your dream as an adult to wrap up the podcast as, a, as an adult uh, i have a couple of dreams i was telling my husband part of me honestly and this is like really personal but i feel like we're in a time of such instability politically globally with climate change. My husband and I have been talking about kids and, you know, I was kind of like, I just want to be huge and pregnant and have a bunch of kids and live in a big house and like not have to worry about these existential threats. Like I love my career. I love the opportunities I've been afforded. I love my work, but I think in so many ways we are in such a chaotic environment right now. I don't think there was ever a time as a black woman where that was an option that was really afforded to us. I'll say that honestly. I think we've always been expected to work. We've always been expected to work in service of other people's comfort. And one thing that like really resonated with me was hearing Michelle Obama talk about staying at home as a mom and that being a revolutionary act. One thing I share with people is that, you know, when I started my career, I would be on these panels and they, one of the questions they would, they would always ask me is like, how did you deal with conversations about work-life balance? And my response is, I never got to have that conversation. So I always assumed like a woman like me would work. I didn't always want to work, but, you know, I would just love to just have some kids and feel safe and rooted and stable and know that like the future is secured. And I think right now we're in a position where we have to secure it. And in some ways it sucks. It's a privilege to be in the fight, but it sucks. The future I want is a future where it's secure. And I know that I'm going to be bringing up my children and having a family in a super safe, beautiful place. 
speaking out. You, know? you can hear her in the background. She's like, yes, yes. She's like, for me, for me, for me. <laughs> it really touches me when you're speaking as a mom to just want to be safe and enjoying the motherhood and enjoying yeah. the family. Because yeah. like people talk about achieving their career, but it's an achievement to find a mate that loves you back and supports you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's an achievement to create a lovely home to raise a child in that is yeah. loving and safe and all that. And when you create that, you you want to be in it. It's like a beautiful yeah. little and dream. We're in the process right now. We're not children anymore. Like we're in the process of building our legacy. You know, I don't know how old you are, but like for <laughs> me, <you> it's like, <laughs> okay, so yeah, I'm 40. <laughs> And in some ways that feels like very young, but in some ways it's like, no, but like you're fully a grown ass woman, right? You are now responsible for another human being. You're responsible for what you leave behind. Part of that is our work, but part of that is also thinking thinking about it more broadly. What are we leaving? Whether it's for our children, our biological family or our chosen family, what legacies do we do we leave behind? And also what money, right? Which is part of the legacy conversation, right? What are the opportunities that we get to have access to? And what are the opportunities that our children get to have access to? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I love that you brought that into this conversation because it's such a, it's a nice, it's a nice point to end on because it gives people a lot mm. of things to think about, I think. Yeah. Because that's what we're doing in this for. Like we're doing this for our yeah. kids because because they have to deal with it because we our parents had to deal with it and now it just it doesn't stop. Even for people who don't necessarily have kids of their own, we're all in some ways responsible to the next generation. N- not just like my baby or your baby, but like what we leave behind, we're responsible for that. And I think it's so easy to move away from that community mindedness. That we as a generation, we as a collective of adults, we as people in the world who have power are responsible. And it's not just, I am responsible for my baby, you're responsible for your baby. No, all of us are responsible for that next generation coming up. And that's so beautiful. And thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for making the time. I'm excited to share your book out in my newsletter as well. And people can sign up on the newsletter to get a few copies of how to talk about race. So just go to dreamnation.io and find the newsletter sign up and you can win a few copies. All right. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast. It's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more. And together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love. Share it with your friends. Have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.